0: And belly on up to the 9-foot homemade oak bar Pour yourself a cold one My name is Chris, his name is Ed This is Socks in the Basement And it is brought to you by Family Waterproofing Solutions You want to find out You do What a difference a family makes Especially when it comes to protecting your home Uh, You got seepage, you got water coming in You're worried about your window wells uh, Your foundation's a little messed up You're seeing with the change in temperature Weird things happening around the home You want to get your gutters clean They're actually doing that service as well, because what does that do? It protects your home from water damage. 10% off through the month of November, and also, you get a discount when you mention socks in the basement, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Give them a call, 708-330-4466, or check them out and everything they have to offer at FamilyDry.com. We have a big guest today, Ed. Yes, we do. This is the beginning of our $1,000 guest bounty going on the entire off-season, and the first guest... That was suggested by a listener is none other than former Expo's general manager. And and Marlins general I think he was team president with the Marlins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The guy that once said publicly that Jerry Reinstaur gave him advice to always finish second. Ed has been rattling off all these interesting facts about David Sampson all day long. He's got some great questions like this. This might be an Ed driven show. He's like ready for this one. He's very excited about it. So David will be joining us on the show here shortly. Before we get to that, Scott Boras indicates that the that Carlos Rodon wanted a long term contract and would not have taken the qualifying offer. Well, isn't that special? OK, like, Okay. Sir. listen, let me explain something to anybody that got excited about that. Anybody who was like, oh, the White Sox screwed up. He would have never taken the qualifying offer. What do you expect Scott Boras to say? My, my client's arm is being held together with hockey tape. I just saw him earlier, and his wife, Ashley, she was like, she was trying to pop it back into a socket. He would have definitely taken that $18 million qualifying offer, because there's no way that we have any confidence that he's worth more than that or more years. Do you think Scott Boras would have said anything other than, oh, he would have never taken that? He's a multi-year pitcher He's worth a ton of money. Of course he said that. What Scott Boras just said has no bearing on why the White Sox didn't pick up Carlos Rodon's qualifying offer. No bearing whatsoever. That is a man protecting his client and making sure that other owners know we would have never have taken that. That's absurd. The White Sox screwed up here. Now give my client a bunch of years and a bunch of money and don't look at his arm.
1: Boris was around in 2019 when Craig Kimbrell, currently of the White Sox, and Dallas Keuchel, currently of the White Sox, were tagged with a qualifying offer, had that draft pick attached to him, and the entire MLB marketplace looked at him and went, we're good. We'll wait until the uh, qualifying offer comes right. off of you. Right. And, and Rodan, who's got an injury history, again, and, and, you know, I don't know, maybe he does. Maybe he does go out and get signed to a multi-year deal. And the whole qualifying offer thing would have been a big, you know, help for the White Sox getting that draft pick wherever it lands. In reality, though, it, it's also something where, yeah, you're right. It's ridiculous that Boris, you know, that anybody would look at this and be like, well, Scott Boris really stuck it to Rick Hahn there because he really didn't. He just basically advocated for his client, which is what Scott Boris has always done, which is why he's such a successful agent.
0: Joining us on the phone line right now, uh, a contestant in our $1,000 guest bounty brought to you by Elite Benefits of America. Remember, Butch Zemar of Elite Benefits of America wants to help your small or mid-sized company get better insurance. For its employees, it's going to save money for the employee. It's going to save money for the employer. If you're an HR person, you want to impress not only the boss, but also the people that work with you. You want to give Butch a call. He's available to you whenever you want to reach out to him. Butch, actually, this is all he does. He just lives for insurance. 708-535-3006. Or check out everything that Elite Benefits has to offer at EliteBenefits.net. And we have an entry and i want to bring up the guy's name who actually did it and, and it's funny i can't wait to talk to our guest about this because we learned just before he came on he has he has no idea who this person is like this it's so cool let's introduce david samson first how are you david i'm great how are you David Sampson, you uh, would know him from a bunch of different things. Front office for the Expos, front office for the Miami Marlins. He got a notification, a push notification when he found out he was fired from that job. That became like a story. And he does a podcast called Nothing Personal. What is your normal week like now? Are you busier doing the podcast and working with CBS? I see you pop up there all the time than you were when you were an executive
2: It's just a different kind of busy, so I don't wait for the phone ring from an agent that's complaining about a player's playing time or complaining that we're not paying enough. I don't wait for a call from my GM that a player got arrested or a player got in trouble, or I don't get a call from the owner saying we suck and we blew another save. Get rid of that guy. Get rid of this guy. I don't have to call in a manager and fire him. I don't have to do any of that stuff anymore, but I miss the, the win and the loss at the end of 162 days where you can really judge yourself. I do miss that competitiveness so I've replaced it by doing this show nothing personal and I can totally obsess over the stats and the clicks and the downloads and the audience and the engagement and I can look at rankings and all the stuff that is enough to make a sane man crazy The good news is I started it crazy, so that's my threshold.
0: That's awesome. Now, I want to mention that Carlos reached out to us. uh, Carlos A. I don't want to throw out last names if the guy doesn't want his last name out there. 35-year-old White Sox fan, and you were telling me before we started talking that uh, you have no idea who Carlos is. Like, he's just a fan of your show, and he reached out, and he said, can you come on this White Sox podcast? And you were like, I'm in.
2: So here's I have a Twitter account at David T. Sampson, and my DMs are open. And this all actually goes back to childhood. I'm the guy who was applying for a credit card at nine years old because I thought that would be cool and writing letters to credit card companies. I'm the guy who, when I I ran my first marathon at 28, I called both Philip Morris and McDonald's to sponsor me. And I said, hey, I'll smoke cigarettes at mile 16 and show people that it's okay to smoke and be a runner or I'll eat a quarter pounder. I swear to God, I wrote that letter. And I said, or I'll eat a quarter pounder every day for training. And this was before Supersize Me. And I'll eat a McDonald's quarter pounder during a marathon. And I heard back from both companies saying, no, we don't think that's a good fit for us. And I'm the guy who always wanted to be in the room where it happened. And I always wanted to just talk to people who were where I wanted to be. So when I got the job in baseball, And I got it purely because of nepotism, but I kept it because I worked my ass off and I kept it for 18 years because I ended up being good at it. But I always had my door open because people would want to come talk to me. And I didn't want to be the person who was out of reach, out of touch, because that's what I grew up with and what I grew up around. I have a funny little side story. I worked at Morgan Stanley and my boss, like three levels up for me or five levels up for me at Morgan Stanley on Wall Street, he would never give me a meeting. And I always wanted to meet with him because I wanted to be him. And he would never let me talk to him. Then I leave Morgan Stanley and I become the president. I win a World Series and we're building a ballpark and the team is gaining in value. And that same guy called me asking whether or not I'd be willing to use Morgan Stanley as a banker. And of course, I told him to bugger off. I said, of course I'm not gonna use you. Do you remember how you treated me? And so I never wanted to be like that. So when I ran the Marlins, my office door was open and I would meet with anyone. All you had to do was make an appointment. And now that I'm on Twitter, my DMs are open and when people DM me, I try to answer. And I try to answer questions on the show, nothing personal, I try to engage when I can. Of course you can't answer everyone because there's thousands, literally. So this guy just asked a question on Twitter hey you want to go on the socks podcast he never mentioned it, that i recall that he could win money oh yeah he can win a grand dave <laughs> yeah. well that's amazing now that i know that if this guy wins my rate is a thousand and one dollars for this show so he's going to be in a negative net position of a dollar but that's just business right i'm just kidding of course
0: <laughs> it's awesome
2: i want him to win i think it's totally cool and anytime I can do something to help a listener, because they give me forty-five minutes of their time every day. So if I can do something in return, I'm always happy to do it.
1: Well, and, and you know, you could, of course, nominate your own guest to put on the show and just win the thousand dollars yourself. Just because you've been on doesn't mean that yeah. You quick.
0: can now, you can be in it. Just yeah, find yeah. somebody else. It's just kind of it's like a domino effect. That would be that would be actually awesome. I wanna. I know. I know Ed's got a list of questions here, but oh, we've yeah. got to ask it because. I remember talking about it two years ago, and I hope you don't mind me asking the question, but I kind of have to. If I don't, everybody's going to sit there and say, why didn't you ask him about it? So a couple years ago, you know, before the world went crazy or crazier than it already was, uh, you went on, uh, I think, Dan Levitard's podcast, and you said that in your first year of baseball, Jerry Reinsorf, he said his best advice to you was finish in second place every year because your fans will say, wow, we've got a shot, we're in it, but there's always the carrot left there's always one more step to take. And then he got very upset and said, I never said anything like that. And, and I remember back when we talked about it, that I said, you know what? This could have just been like, you know, talk at like a meeting. Like, you know, you have a couple of drinks and you start shooting your mouth off and you make a joke and everybody laughs and you might've just intended to just tell a funny story. How, how accurate was that? And w- what was it? Was it tongue in cheek when he said that to you? Do you think that was his real philosophy?
2: Well, it was definitely real, definitely accurate, and there was no tongue, and there were no cheeks. Wow. But I do want to give a context. I met Jerry when I was, when I was a, a, like a, in high school because as the owner of the Bulls, he sat two rows in front of where I sat uh, whenever the Bulls played the Knicks. So the, owner, the opposing team's owner's seats were two rows in front of me, and I was a very loud, obnoxious fan, like a heckler, like the old... Um, Like, like I would never swear. I was never rude, but I was very on point getting owners where it hurts about overpaid players, about things that the teams are doing wrong. I had no idea what my future would be. I was a kid in high school. So I was all over Jerry Krause. I mean, constantly. So Reinsdorf at one point said to my mother, like, you're going to kill this guy. Like, stop. You're literally going to kill him. So years passed. And I walked into my first owner's meeting as pre- as executive vice president of the Montreal Expos. And I walk in and Reinsdorf looks at me and says, you're that kid. <laughs> and I said, yes, I am, Jerry. How you doing? And he ended up being a mentor. And I, I love him so much. He is such a unbelievable man who wants to win so badly. He always wanted to have as many rings with the White Sox as he had with the Bulls. He's very misunderstood as our many owners in terms of what his desires are, but he's also a businessman. And when I was with the Expos, that's what he said to me. And I get it. Having run a team for 18 years, I totally understand what he meant because when we won the World Series in 03, the expectation gets ratcheted up. You have to repeat. You have to somehow keep that window of competition open. You have to do better than you've done. And how do you ever do better? Because at the end of every year, there's 29 losers and only one winner. But if you're in second place, that means you're not tanking, right? It means that you're, have, you've had a competitive September where you're in it and the fans are interested and there's still more to do. So fans will come back and buy season tickets and sponsors will be interested. So really the, the reference was, hey, if being in last place stinks. Winning the World Series is amazing, but then it's what have you done for me lately? So I respect what he said. And I, I just want to give it some frame of reference. So you shouldn't get on Jerry for that because he's damn right.
1: That said, and, and, and I, don't, I never took that as a shot at White Sox fandom, but do you think that there are teams in Major League Baseball or, or really any sport, because I know you cover other sports now on your podcast, but do you think that there are fan bases that that is really enough for them? Or, or, or does every fan base you know, and every team really have that that desire to win or, or you know, or, 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 can we, you know, can we just sit there and say, and I'm not going to pick on the Cubs specifically, but you know, the Cubs will enjoy the lovable loser. Yeah. For, I mean, our, know,
0: fan base is different. Like, I mean, some of them expect championships or want them, even if they're not any good. Like I feel like white Sox fans like want championships. They're 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 just disappointed. They don't get them because we're not the Yankees Yankees fans see it as a birthright, but are there, are there a uh, fan bases that maybe you've dealt with Uh, personally or that you've covered or that you've been around or that you've talked to other people that really don't care if they win. They just want to have a good time.
2: It's all about expectation, right? It's all about managing expectations. The Yankees are expected to win a world series every year. It's not realistic. They're expected to be in the world series every year. It's not realistic. They haven't been since 2009. And you'd think the sky's falling here in New York. And I get it because where their payroll is, but think about a team like the Tampa Bay Rays. They have a payroll in the bottom three. And they've got years and years where they're super competitive. They make it to the World Series. They almost could win, but they haven't. Then they win a division. And then they have to tear it down and rebuild because that's what teams do, like what the Oakland A's are doing now. And everyone's all over them. They had a huge opening window where they were unbelievably competitive, made the playoffs multiple years in a row, didn't win the ring because that requires luck in October. But yet they were super competitive. But now they're going to go into a window of rebuilding totally normal. The White Sox are now in a period where they are in ready-to-win mode, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a World Series, but every fan base wants it, and it's our job to outplay our coverage, right? That's the expression, to outkick your coverage, and if your coverage says that you're supposed to win the World Series, it's impossible to outkick it. You can only disappoint your fans, right? You have a 29 and 30 chance of disappointing your fans. So I always like to say to our fan base, hey, we have a shot this year. We'd be disappointed if we're not competing for a championship. Then you're putting your fans in position to want it.
0: David Sampson joining us here on Socks in the Basement. He is an entry in the $1,000 guest bounty. Get more details at SoxintheBasement.com. You can also subscribe or check out past episodes anytime on demand at that website or anywhere podcasts can be found. If David comes into Chicago and wants to take in a White Sox game, I would take him beforehand to cork and carry at the park in the shadow of the ballpark at 33rd and Princeton. Great ballpark food items and also an incredible menu filled with award-winning burgers. An extensive bar with your old favorites and also craft beer selections rotating through. Indoor-outdoor seating during the season and they're open year-round. If you're around the area, you want to stop in get in there, get some good food. You don't have to wait until opening day. And then this is the time of year that I go into a place that I've been going into, especially around this time of the season. Cork and Carry, the original location in Beverly, 10614 Southwestern Avenue. Get more information on both locations, corkandcary.com. So we've got a guy right now on this show with 18 years of experience in MLB front offices. So let's Talk front office work. We have a chance here uh, as a White Sox fan base, uh, the White Sox as an organization, to win a championship. They're in a window right now. There are things they have to do in the offseason. One of the big issues that have happened for the Sox, and, and Ed and I have had this conversation, we think one of the biggest failures that could happen right now is you make a deal where you took a shot and you trade away a young player, Nick Madrigal, that I think is going to have a really nice career and you have a hole at second base but you're going for it. You go get a Craig Kimbrel, and it doesn't work out fine. That happens sometimes. I'm sure that's happened to you before where it looked good on paper and it didn't work in the end. But now you the White Sox are, are picking up Kimbrel's option, but word leaked out almost immediately that they're just picking it up to trade him as a GM, as somebody in a front office. It does that really hamper you. Is it basically, if Rick Hahn starts calling up other owners saying, hey, are you interested in Kimbrough? They're like, hey, we know you're trying to unload him and you're not going to get a good deal because it's already out there.
2: Isn't it funny how how hard it is to please people? When the Cincinnati Reds let Wade Miley go on waivers to the Cubs, I believe, who picked him up, everyone was all over the Reds. Why didn't you just pick up his option and then trade him? And then the White Sox pick up Kimbrough's option and they want to trade him and everyone's all over the White Sox. (laughs) Every GM knows what every GM is doing. And that's one of the dirty secrets that we don't tell fans. Everyone thinks it's so mysterious. But we keep track of every team's payroll. We keep track of every player's contract. We have spreadsheets where we have an idea where we play GM, not fantasy baseball. We actually we know what we're doing just because it's our job to do what we're doing. So we keep track of every team and what they're doing. So when we speak to the White House, we say, hey, you know, You're moving Kimbrell because you have Liam. So here's what we can offer because we think there's about four teams that can take on Kimbrell's money who need a closer. And this is what we think it's worth given the fact that we're gonna take on sixteen million. If you want to pay for half his contract, so we're only taking on eight, then we'd be willing to give you a better package of players. And that's a conversation that all teams have with all other teams and it's totally standard operating procedure. White Sox are in no worse shape after that leak than they were before
1: it. So the other the other thing that's popped up David is is the qualifying offer stuff and I know you see like Clayton Kershaw doesn't get it but Rick is getting roasted on Twitter because he didn't give the qualifying offer to Carlos Rodon. And there was uh, a tweet that broke out today that uh, Scott Boris was like, well, he wouldn't have taken it anyway. Of course, the, you know, gonna yeah. <laughs> of
0: course he's going to say that. Of course
1: he's going to say that. I mean, what else is he going
0: to say? Yeah. Yeah. Was he going to say, I'm duct taping my, my pitcher's arm together every morning yeah. and he would have jumped at that? Like, I, he, of course he's going to say that.
1: Yeah, he's not going to sit there and say.
2: <laughs> Let me just make sure that everyone in Chicago hears this very clearly. If Rick Hahn had offered Carlos Rodon a qualifying offer, he would have gotten fired. <laughs> it's not, it wasn't even a question. He doesn't give one crap about being roasted on Twitter. He doesn't want to lose his job. And the people on Twitter are people who are just saying, oh, well, how could you not do that? Well, the reason is, is Carlos would have taken it because before we make qualifying offers, we're seeing what the players have out there. We don't want to get stuck with a player who's not worth $18.4 million. Now, listen, Carlos had a very nice stretch. He can be really good when he is on the mound. But for $18.4 million, not a chance. Now, is there a team out there who may give him a two-year deal at 30? I wouldn't, but could, there could be a team. But Scott Boris telling you he's got a multi-year deal for Rodon. When he opens his mouth, he's lying.
0: <laughs> i love that i love and you know what aren't you talking to him this week on nothing personal didn't i see that already i love that you say that and you you're, and you talk with the guy on your podcast don't you
2: no he would never he would never have the guts to come on my show i would have him on and say would never be a guest i'm going to discuss his today on whatever day we are, November something, I don't know what day you're releasing this, but whatever day today is, because we can pretend it's any day, right? We're in the podcast. Right, right, gave, right. oh, at, the, at the general manager's meetings, he held court, which he loves to do, and he just spews this nonsense with these metaphors and similes that make everyone look at him and roll their eyes and, and want to literally put a knife in their eyeballs, and he says nothing except self-serving statements. So tomorrow I'm Nothing Personal, That I'm going to talk about it and explain to people why he says what he says. And it's always for one reason. It's in his own self-interest to make sure that Boris Corporation continues to be profitable. And the problem is owners bail him out year after year. And that's what drives me crazy, is that owners, we could all work together to totally screw Scott Boris. And I'm talking about collusion, baby, except the unspoken type. The unplanned type, the type that doesn't get you in trouble with the union. It's the type that says, you know what? Players that Scott Forest represents are simply not worth what he thinks they are. So we're not going to bail them out. But owners seem to do it every single year, which just emboldens him.
0: Does that happen? Are there conversations between teams? Like all this, all this guy is doing is driving the two of us against each other. So we should both stop. Like, do conversations like that happen?
2: By the way, that's not collusion. When Scott Boris calls you and says, and he's done this to me, hey, you know, you've got people in your division who want this player. Hey, you better sign him or you're going to lose him to a team in your division. Your owner's not going to be happy. And he is totally full of it. I don't need to speak to another team's owner to know that or another team's president because we're looking at the other team's roster. And we know very well that this player doesn't fit the way Boris thinks he fits. So we don't need to collude. I never engaged in collusion because it wasn't necessary. We would have conversations with other team presidents. Hey, how's your revenue looking? And that's code for, where's your payroll gonna be? Wow! Right, because if if someone says, hey man, we're selling tickets like you can't believe, I'd go back to the GM and say, hey, they've got some extra revenue here, let's pay attention to what they're doing because they may raise their payroll and they've got a need at starting pitcher, They they may be in on this guy. So we just put pieces together all the time, as though we're on Survivor. But boy, I sucked at that game. Yeah, you <laughs> were well, first guy off. <laughs>
0: season season twenty eight. He was he was gone right away. David Sampson did not did not last very long on Survivor. Well,
2: by the way, in my defense, they dressed me as Thurston Frickin Howell. <laughs> so if you're gonna wear a blazer and an ascot, the odds are you're not gonna win. Right? No. no.
1: Yeah, that's, that's that's not the Gilligan's Island character you want to be modeled after, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, no,
0: not at all. Okay, so the GM meetings are going on. You've gone and been a part of these things. You've been a part of uh, the winter meetings and everything like that. Everybody always says, oh, they lay the groundwork in the GM meetings, and then when they get to the winter meetings, they start making their deals. Do guys basically have a schedule in their head as to when they're going to start making moves? Uh, how, what's getting done at a GM meeting? Kind of pull that curtain back for us real quick.
2: Yeah, absolutely nothing. So it's, just, it, it, it's, it's, an, it's people sitting around in a room, ordering in food, going out to dinners, having snacks, and they, it's eyewash, right? It, the GM meetings and the winter meetings are eyewash now because when they started, they weren't. Because back then, you didn't really communicate with other teams very well. You had to catch them on a landline if you possibly could. Now GMs and presidents are texting each other all the time. You're FaceTiming all the time. So you're in touch, and you're in touch with your people all the time. So the GM meetings and the winter meetings were a chance to get everyone in the same room on your team, your scout direct, your scouting director, your player development director, your your pro scouts. You put them in a room and you're together. But now those types of in-person meetings happen via Zoom all the time. So the the usefulness of them is gone. The most important piece that you need to do your off season is a payroll. And no matter what Dombrowski said. Because he had a quote about Philly that made me laugh. That uh, that he got a payroll no matter what happens with collective bargaining, and he's got to be full of it. Because as John Middleton would spend stupid money as the owner of the Phillies, that's his famous comment. If we have to spend stupid money, we're going to do it, which is music to the union's ear. But there's no way an owner has given a payroll to a GM right now because they don't know where the competitive balance luxury tax threshold is going to be. They're not sure what the new CBA is going to look like. So it's irresponsible to give a payroll. And without a payroll, you can't put together a team. So really, the GM meetings are just an opportunity to hang out and, and eat some good food.
1: Well, is there anything that goes on? Is there any discussion in a, in a year like this where the CBA is up uh, about what's going to happen? I mean, is there any discussion amongst the owners, you know, taking that opportunity to, to, to be around other GMs, other executives, other owners? to go over what they would like to see happen? Or is, is is that already kind of been established?
2: Oh, there's there's meetings that all teams do at the commissioner's office with their list of, of what it would take for them to vote for a CBA, what they will agree to, what they won't agree to. The commissioner takes all 30 teams, makes sure that he can count to 23 and uses that to make the offers to the union. Because he can't make an offer to the union for a deal that he doesn't have the votes for. So you take each category, you know, how important is you know, arbitration to you having it be available after two years instead of three, or minimum salary being a million dollars instead of six hundred thousand dollars. And if there's eight owners who say, Listen, if the minimum salary is a million dollars, I don't care what else is in the CBA, I'm a no vote. I promise you, the CBA will not have a minimum salary of a million dollars. So, owners decide what hill they're willing to die on, they choose what issues mean the most. But truthfully, if you're a good owner or a president, you look at the CBA in its totality. So there really is never one particular issue that, is, that it makes you a no vote because you have to look at it all together. So what the commissioner does is puts together this pie of issues, makes offers to the union, and then goes back to the owners and presidents all the time talking about where they are.
1: So, if the CBA negotiations are survivor, are there any owners right now that you're dressing up as Thurston Howell and voting <laughs> off right away to try and get them out of the <laughs> yeah, way? Is it like somebody
0: you're like, yeah, yeah, he always disagrees with everything?
2: One of the hard line guys is Jerry Weinsdorf. Uh, you know, back in the day, he was a, a no vote for Rod Manford for commissioner because he didn't think Rod would be hard enough. Uh, during labor and strong enough during labor. And now, now of course, he's he learned and knows what a great commissioner Rob is, representing the owner's interest, which is what his job is. And so, so Jerry is very concerned about labor, always has been, and there's many owners like that who want to keep the system as it is or even better for owners. And the problem is that the last couple labor deals were so good for the owners and that's the simplistic way of saying it, but the economics of the labor agreement were really pro-owner because the union just wasn't paying attention at all. They were more focused on having a chef in the clubhouse, right? That was their big thing and having better off days and better travel and earlier game times and crap that owners didn't care about. Now they, they hired a guy named Bruce Mayer who is helping the union and Scott Boris is hugely involved in this in his own self-serving way. Scott Boris, uh, basically has all of his players on the executive council who are doing the negotiating. So the owners know when they're negotiating the CBA, they're really negotiating with Boris because Boris has the most power in the union right now. That's why I'm concerned that a deal's not going to get done very quickly. But I think that Boris realizes that having a work stoppage that misses games is not in his best interest. So I would think that's not going to happen.
0: I want you to play GM for me. You're the general manager of the White Sox. Uh, a lot of people basically say, Second base, right field, they like to see an upgrade. You might need another pitcher now because you didn't give the QO to Rodon. And, you know, you, you might need to add a little bullpen help. Are you doing this mostly during through a trade? Are you doing this mostly through free agency? Do you feel like Rick Hahn might have a little bit of wiggle room because his team performed? And we have seen Jerry Reinsdorf before end up in the top five or six payrolls right around when they won the World Series. He was sitting up there pretty high. You know, it's a different amount of money because it's it costs a lot more now than what it did back in 2005. But do, you, what, do you, what do you predict for the White Sox in the offseason? Uh, what what can fans look forward to if you were the GM of that team?
2: So what did we learn this year? What we learned is that the team that you start with is not the team you finish with. The Atlanta Braves made it through October with a completely different outfield. They lost to Cunha, They lost to Ozuna. Their number one starting pitcher was out. What we learned is that starting pitching is no longer a premium because starting pitching goes four or five innings at most. You know, the day of the complete game is over. There's only a few guys who do 200 innings. So the, the concept of looking for a workhorse, has sort of gone. What you need now is depth. You look at Tampa. They get rid of players all the time, yet they bring up new guys who are young and rookies and throw in 98. You have bullpen arms that you're cycling through. You've got names that people don't know that aren't sexy. Adam Duval, right? Jock Peterson. You had Rosario from the Indians, right? These are not usually sexy names. George Soler. These guys were able to work together to perform and got hot enough at the same time. The San Francisco Giants, we look at their example. They had six or seven guys have career years, and they did that and they were able to have a season that, where they totally outperformed their expectations. If I'm the White Sox, they've dipped their toes in free agency tremendously. They've signed bullpen arms at the top of the market. I'm looking for them to have Rick Hahn add value by signing players who you don't know, signing players who are going to give them innings, who are going to be multiple inning relievers, signing outfielders, who can defend all three positions and hit anywhere in the order, sign guys who both can get on base and don't strike out as much as, as is sexy these days in baseball. It doesn't take a genius to find Garrett Cole, right? It takes a genius to find the seven or eight million dollar pitcher who ends up winning 15 games or ends up giving you 160- quality innings, or you trade for a prospect that no one's ever heard of, who ends up in your bullpen throwing 98 and gives you 50 innings of great bullpen work. So I think that when you're a fan of a team, you just have to hope that your front office is as good as the Rays' front office. And I think that Kenny Williams and Rick Kahn are that good. So I'm not looking for them to make a splash in pre-agency because Jerry knows that that's not how you win. I'm looking for deals on the margin and for them to outsmart, outwit, and outplay the other teams in their division.
0: David Sampson, I want to say, first of all, thanks for coming on, because it's it's really nice that you, first of all, had the, uh, the DMs open on the Twitter. And you can follow David at David P. Sampson on the Twitter. Uh, his podcast, Nothing Personal with David Sampson, is a great listen. But you you jumped in here and, and got on this show because a listener re- reached out who listens to our show and listens to your show and said, man, I would love to have him talk with the, the other show. Yeah. He wanted us both to get together. And I really enjoyed a lot of the things that you had to talk about. And it's enlightening to talk with somebody who has been in the world of major league baseball at the high level that you've been in. And it's, it's very insightful. I I've enjoyed our, our chat today. I, I would love it. If in the future, we can get you back on again, but I thank you for the time that you gave us. And I just hope that everybody who is not listening yet to your podcast starts checking it out. And I really appreciate you coming on Socks in the Basement.
2: Hey, let
1: me know if you win the G, okay? Oh, uh, well, absolutely. definitely. Yeah,
0: so you can collect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Socks in the Basement. Socks in the Basement. Socks in the Basement.
2: Socks in the Basement. <laughs> Heard everywhere podcast can be found. And always on Socksinthebasement.com. I'm going for the grand, baby.